Our lesson of the day brings us back to James. I will read from chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Here again, the Word of God. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now your truth, your wisdom. We know that Christ Jesus is your wisdom. We know your Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. Impart this wisdom to us now through your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ever wonder why mountain climbers don't just take a helicopter up to the summit? Think of all the time and energy they could save. Think of all the risk and danger they could avoid. They'd get the same view from the top, right? That same glorious view. So why not just take a helicopter to the top of the mountain? Well, mountain climbers do what they do not just for the view that comes at the end. The process is important. Oh, sure, they want that view at the end. That's the goal, to get to the top, but the process matters as well. Mountain climbers can actually enjoy the climb itself. The challenge of it, the challenge of climbing the mountain, the skills and stamina that are developed, uh, the, the, the tests of character and of discipline and of endurance, the way the climb itself builds resilience. Mountain climbers would tell you, it's not just the view from the top that matters. The climb itself has value. Mountain climbing is hard, but it can be joyful if you really understand its purpose. The joy that comes during the climb really is the result of a mental calculation where the climber will reckon that this suffering, this pain that he's going through right now, the trials of ascending the mountain are worth it because of what they produce and what they lead to. And really that's how the Christian life works as well. If you're a Christian, you've been called to climb a mountain. Uh, It's a mountain climb that takes work, but it is worth it because it leads to this final view of God's glory, the most glorious view of all. When you reach the summit, the beatific vision, seeing God in his glory. But getting there is also a joyful experience. It's not easy, but it is joyful. And James in these verses really focuses on the process of climbing the mountain. What it's like to climb the mountain, to ascend to God. God puts us through all kinds of suffering and trials and struggle and pain on our way to those final heights. But He does so for good reason. Yes, the climb itself is hard. It's difficult. But it can also be a time of joy if we will look at it in the right kind of way. See, God is making us into a certain kind of people. He's 
building our character during the climb and through the climb. He's building up our resolve, our toughness. He's teaching us perseverance and discipline. In a word, you could say he's maturing us. And part of that maturity is wisdom. We associate wisdom with maturity, don't we? We associate wisdom with old age, with maturation. This is what God's doing in our lives. He's bringing us to maturity, and maturity means wisdom. There are really no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts to the top. There's no, there are no shortcuts to maturity. There are no shortcuts to wisdom. Oh, sure, we might wish that God would helicopter us straight up to the heights of heaven without having to pass through the pain of the journey, the difficulty of the climb, but God makes us climb the mountain. James doesn't say that when you face trials, pray that God would take them away. We're not to pray, God, take away this mountain that we're climbing. No, he says, when you face trials, ask God to grant you wisdom for the journey. Wisdom so you can navigate the mountain. Wisdom for the climb. Why is that? Because as we climb the mountain, we realize all that we lack. And one of the things we lack is wisdom. And that's why right after telling us to count our trials as joy, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and it will be given. If there were no mountain to climb, no trials, no hardships, maybe we would never see our need for wisdom. Some of us, again, perhaps would rather have that helicopter ride to the top instead of wisdom. But God wants us to be wise, and so He puts us in hard places and hard situations where wisdom is required. The letter of James really is all about Christian maturity about God bringing us to maturity, how God brings us to maturity, what maturity looks like. You know, James sometimes gets treated as the leftovers of the New Testament. You know, everything else, it seems like, in the New Testament is more important, and then James is kind of pushed off to the side. I think that's a mistake to overlook and ignore James in that way. James has crucial lessons for us in our understanding of the Christian life. There's no other book quite like James in all of the New Testament. James' goal for us is for us to become perfect or whole or complete or mature. Uh, different translations capture what James is saying with, with different words, but th- that, that's what James is getting at. You see it there in James chapter 1, verse 4, uh, that we're to be perfect or complete. That's the goal. You see it in chapter 3, verse 2, where James describes the perfect man or the mature man or the complete man as a man who has control over his tongue. Again and again, this theme of maturity pops up in James' letter because maturity really is the goal of the Christian life. And that maturity includes wisdom. And so in order to attain maturity, we have to understand wisdom. It's wisdom, really, that enables us to profit from our afflictions. It's wisdom that enables us to turn a profit from our afflictions, to get a return on our suffering. That word that's translated as perfect or complete here, uh, again, it also could mean mature. Uh, It describes something that comes at the end of a process, comes at the end of a journey. 
Okay, when you have attained to maturity, that means your journey is complete and the goal has been attained. That's where James is taking us. The mature man or the complete man is a man who lacks nothing, as he says in verse 4. That kind of maturation is always held out as the goal for God's people. It's James' goal for us here in this letter. You could say it was Paul's goal in his letters and the churches he ministered to. It's Paul's goal for Christians as well. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, it's our desire to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the Colossians and says, our goal for each one of you is that we would be able to present you mature, in Christ, mature in your faith, mature in wisdom. Job from the Old Testament is a great example of a man who is maturing. Job is a wonderful example of a mature man in the scriptures. James, uh, in fact, will even use the example of Job towards the end of his book uh, because Job, I would say, really is in the background of the whole book. In Job chapter 1, Job is declared to be a perfect man or a mature man or a blameless man is how it's sometimes translated. He's whole, he's complete, he's, he has integrity. He is advancing in godliness in every area of his life. Now that doesn't mean he's sinless at this point, obviously, but it does mean he is a well-rounded servant of God. There are no obvious gaps in his life. No, no obvious holes in his life. He's a man of integrity. He's not a double-minded man. He serves God with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, of course, in the book of Job, we learn that part of Job's maturation process includes suffering. God is bringing Job from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. He's moving Job from perfection to perfection, from, uh, from, from maturity to even greater maturity. That's really the trajectory of the book. And God brings Job to these even higher levels of maturity through suffering. Of course, the book of Job is part of what we call the Bible's wisdom literature, the wisdom books in Scripture. We can say that the suffering Job endured produced even greater wisdom in his life. His suffering served a good purpose, bringing him to new levels of wisdom, new levels of maturity. And of course, as we read his book and we glean the lessons that are there, we can come to greater levels of maturity and wisdom as well. And here in James 1, you've got all those same themes. You've got suffering and maturation and wisdom all rolled together to show us what Christian wholeness or what Christian perfection looks like. In fact, you know, James really can be thought of as New Testament wisdom literature. So I say there's really nothing else in the New Testament quite like James. Think of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. What are the wisdom books of the Old Testament? Well, there are five books uh, that are lumped together, grouped together in the Old Testament that are considered the wisdom books. And each one has a different theme. You have Job, which is wisdom about suffering. You have the Psalms, which are wisdom about worship. You have the Proverbs, which are wisdom for daily life. You have Ecclesiastes, which is wisdom about death. And Song of Solomon, which is wisdom about love. James will take themes from each of those Old Testament wisdom books and draw them together into a unique piece of New Covenant wisdom literature. And so you you could really think of James as a kind of New Covenant Proverbs. 
Uh, it's a Proverbs for the New Covenant people. James is like a new Job or like a new Solomon who is a, a sage. He's a sage sharing heavenly wisdom with the church, calling on us to seek this wisdom, to grow in this wisdom, to see our need for this wisdom, to pursue this wisdom, to cry aloud for this wisdom. Obviously, in James' view, Christians are not exempt from suffering. Yes, we are children of a loving Father, but that does not guarantee to us a comfortable, easy life. Rob Rayburn says that while, yes, Christians are a special people, we're not a protected species. We might like to be, but we're not. If anything, we're a hunted species, a persecuted species. In fact, becoming a Christian may make your life more difficult rather than less difficult. It may create a whole new host of problems and forms of suffering for you to go through. And that is why we need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate these trials. Wisdom to climb the mountains God calls us to climb. James tells us, ask for wisdom. And of course, in writing this letter to us, he's imparting wisdom to us. But he says, seek wisdom, ask for wisdom, cry out for wisdom. And James, in writing this letter, has again given us a a piece of wisdom literature. Uh, Part of how he is uh, growing us in wisdom is by writing words of wisdom to the church. And it's interesting to compare James with other wisdom literature in the Bible. You see all kinds of connections, not just in terms of the themes, but even in the the way the book is set up and structured, even in the kind of rhetoric and language that the book uses. Proverbs is known for these proverbial sayings, right? Pithy little sayings that kind of grab your attention that you have to reflect on and meditate on to really understand what they're about. And James works the same way. James is full of these pithy, proverbial sayings. He uses a lot of catchphrases, catchwords, like the other wisdom books do. Listen to some of these sayings from James. And again, a lot of James sounds like it could be, uh, you know, drawing straight out of Proverbs, these kind of sayings that would be right at home in the book of, of Proverbs. Listen to some of the sayings that James gives us, some of the Proverbs, the Proverbs of James. We've got the Proverbs of Solomon. Here we've got the Proverbs of James. Sayings like this. Man's anger does not work God's justice. Judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith without works is dead. The tongue is little but makes big boasts. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The prayer of a righteous person has effectual power. You see how these are proverbial sayings. They have a context in James we need to look at, but they really also stand on their own like the Proverbs. Here here are a few others. These are a little more expansive, but I think these can also be considered proverbial sayings of James. Blessed are those who endure temptation for being proven they will receive the crown of life. Religion that is pure and undefiled with God and the Father is this to watch over orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking the whole of it. Everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. 
A lot of these sayings actually do echo uh, Proverbs, uh, but they're, they're written, even if they're not direct echoes of Proverbs, they're written in that same kind of pithy style. These are sayings that would be just as fitting in the book of Proverbs as they are here. And it's not just Proverbs he draws from. Just to give you another example of this, James also draws from Ecclesiastes. James chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Your life is a mist. Your life is but a vapor. Well, we've seen, that's really, the when I preach from Ecclesiastes, we've seen that's the whole theme of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, vapor, vapor, all is vapor, mist, mist, all is mist. Solomon's saying, your life is a mist. James picks up on that and says, your life is a mist. There's a link with Ecclesiastes. And of course, I've already pointed out connections with Job, uh, particularly this connection between wisdom and suffering, the trials God puts us through in order to lead us to wisdom. Really, the center, the structural center of the book of James, I can't demonstrate this to you, you just have to take my word for it, but structurally, in terms of the literary architecture of the book, the center of it all is in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And there James leads with a question. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the question he's posing to his readers. Who among you has wisdom? Who among you is wise? And then James in this section explains what this wisdom looks like. To be wise, to live in the way that he's describing as wise, to live out this wisdom, this heavenly wisdom that is from above, is to live a life of good deeds, a life of gentleness and mercy, a life of impartiality and righteousness. And James contrasts that way of living according to the heavenly wisdom with living according to demonic wisdom, which is earthy, which comes from below and produces bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This demonic, earthy wisdom comes from below rather than from above. And it leads to disorder, a disordered life, a disordered community. It leads to all kinds of evils. So what is James? James is wisdom literature. James is telling us to pursue wisdom, to seek wisdom, and he's giving us wisdom in this letter. But what exactly is wisdom? When we talk about wisdom, what are we talking about? What is wisdom? I think wisdom is actually easier to describe than to define. Uh, I think it helps us to understand that there are several different types of wisdom in Scripture. This is part of why it's hard to define There are a varieties of different types of wisdom that we find in Scripture. There's what you could call practical wisdom. This is knowing how to do stuff, to be real blunt about it. It's knowing how to do things, knowing how to do stuff in the world. Bezalel is the first man in Scripture to be called wise. He's given a spirit of wisdom in the book of Exodus so that he can make furnishings for the tabernacle. And so... What does his wisdom consist in? How does his wisdom work itself out? Well, his wisdom is seen that he knows how to work with a variety of different kinds of woods and metals to produce beautiful objects. He's taking raw materials in the world and transforming them into these artifacts that are are beautiful, that are glorious. He's an artisan. He's a craftsman. And his wisdom is seen in his craftsmanship. Knowing how to do stuff in the real world is a form of wisdom. So knowing how to frame a house is a form of wisdom. Knowing how to fix a car is a form of wisdom. Knowing how to bake a cake is a kind of wisdom. Knowing how to sew a dress is a form of wisdom. 
techniques and practical skills that allow us to take dominion over different aspects of the creation, whether it's making, building, repairing, fixing. All of these are forms of practical wisdom. Wisdom is a kind of craftsmanship. That's why one of the best things you can do as a parent if you want to teach your child wisdom is to teach your child to work with his or her hands. There's a very real sense in which the first kind of wisdom we we begin to acquire comes from working with our hands in the world. We learn that there are certain ways things fit together and certain ways they don't, that there's, there's an order and structure to reality we have to submit ourselves to. It's the beginnings of wisdom. But there are other forms of wisdom. There's what you might call virtue wisdom or moral wisdom, wisdom about ethics, wisdom about right and wrong. This is wisdom about how to live in accord with our design, how to live in accord with our creational design, how to live in accord with the way God made us, how to live with the grain of creation instead of going against it. You go against the grain of creation, you're going to get splinters. That's foolish. But you go with the grain of creation, uh, you'll find that things go well for you in general. Uh, This kind of moral wisdom. Uh, You see this in... Uh, Proverbs, this kind of virtue wisdom. In, in, in Proverbs, for example, wisdom is connected to a particular work ethic. So the wise man works hard where the fool is lazy. There's a kind of wisdom in the work ethic. Wisdom is connected to a sex ethic. The wise man is self-controlled. The fool is not. The wise man knows what kind of woman to pursue and make his wife, and the fool keeps going after the wrong kind of girl. Wisdom is connected to a speech ethic. The wise man knows when to hold his tongue, and when he does speak, he knows what to say. The fool does not. The fool blurts out things when he shouldn't, says things he shouldn't say, he misuses his tongue, and on and on you can go. Proverbs works out this kind of virtue wisdom. Wisdom enables us to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, towards the right people, and in the right proportion. That's virtue wisdom. Then there's relational wisdom. Wisdom that's needed for interacting successfully with other people. You know, the most complicated thing in the world that you're going to encounter is not a a, a rocket ship. It's not a computer. The most complex object in the creation is another human being. Other human beings are the most complex, complicated objects in the world you will ever encounter. And so interacting with other human beings successfully requires wisdom. It requires a kind of relational wisdom. You know, think of Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Not everything in that book is right, but a lot of it is. There's a lot of relational wisdom there. This is wisdom in persuasion, wisdom in peacemaking, wisdom in leadership, wisdom in counseling. These are forms of relational wisdom. It means you understand people. You know how to build relationships. You know how to engage with people, how to lead people, how to reconcile with people when there's been a rupture, how to counsel people when they're in need. These are all forms of relational wisdom. And then there's what we might call vocational wisdom. This is wisdom especially needed to make decisions in those areas of life Scripture does not directly address, which quite quite frankly is Most of the decisions we have to make. The Bible gives you a broad moral framework of how to live your life. But the Bible doesn't answer all the specifics that come up. 
like who to marry. You can say, well, the Bible says to marry a Christian, but that doesn't exactly narrow it down all that much. You still got a choice to make. Who should you marry? Which house should you buy? Uh, which curriculum uh, should you pursue as a major uh, in college? All these are questions that Scripture is not going to answer for you directly. They're questions that require wisdom to answer properly, fittingly. That's really, in a sense, what this kind of vocational wisdom is. Wisdom is the knack of figuring out your place in the world, what God wants you to do and to be. God does not give rules or specific revelation that's going to answer your every question about every decision you have to make. And so in those places where there's not a clear word from God, you need wisdom. You need vocational wisdom to know what God wants you to do. It is vocational wisdom that helps us to use our Christian liberty in the right kind of way. We're free in all kinds of ways, but we want to use our freedom in the proper, fitting way. That's where wisdom comes in. And finally, there's what we could call gospel wisdom. The surprising and paradoxical wisdom of the cross that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross looks like folly to the world, but in truth it enacts the wisdom of God. Just as it looks like weakness, but in fact it is strength. This wisdom is the wisdom of sacrificial love. The wisdom of giving yourself for another. This is the wisdom of sacrifice. It's a wisdom that should be imitated in our own lives. This wisdom that's found in the gospel. And of course, ultimately, this is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is Christ. It is the crucified Christ. He is God's wisdom revealed to us. And now there are other facets of wisdom. I've just brought out what I think are some of the major ones. But in one sense, you could say the whole Christian life the whole life of the Christian is the pursuit of wisdom in these various forms. The book of Proverbs says, get wisdom. Above everything else, get wisdom. It's more costly, it's more valuable than gold and silver and jewels. Pursue wisdom. James says, ask. If, if you lack wisdom, ask for it and God will give it. God will give you wisdom. And I think here James is probably thinking of Solomon. We read it this morning in 1 Kings 3. Solomon, after he's made king, Solomon acknowledges his need for wisdom. God says, I'll give you anything. Solomon says, if I'm going to rule this people well, I need wisdom. Solomon recognizes he lacks wisdom. He's an adult, chronologically speaking, but he says in 1 Kings 3, 7, Oh God, oh Lord, you have made me king, although I am but a child and do not know how to go out or come in. He acknowledges he doesn't yet have that maturity in wisdom needed to rule over the people well. You know, when you first get married, it's easy to feel that way. I don't have wisdom needed to be a spouse or when you first have kids. You may not feel like you have wisdom. Well, here Solomon enters into a role he does not have the wisdom he needs. And so he asks God for wisdom. Solomon knows he does not have the wisdom he needs to lead and judge the nation of Israel. He needs a wisdom from above. And so he asks God for wisdom, and God grants it. And, of course, we see the fruits of it there immediately in Solomon's life. Solomon and James both show us the quest for wisdom begins with a humble admission of our need. 
God will fill you with wisdom once you have acknowledged your emptiness. If you think you're full already, if you are a know-it-all, if you are wise in your own eyes, God's not going to grant you wisdom. No, God is opposed to the proud. But He gives grace and wisdom to the humble. God strengthens those who admit they are weak. God gives wisdom to those who will confess their own folly. And God can give wisdom because He has all wisdom in Himself. Job 12 says, With God are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is God's agent in creation, somehow identified with God, yet distinct from God. We can say that this is somehow connected to to, to the eternal Son who is God's agent in creation. He is the wisdom of God. And of course, that becomes explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says Christ has become for us wisdom from God. And he tells us in Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When God shares wisdom with you, He's sharing Christ with you. He's sharing His Son with you. James emphasizes how ready and willing God is to give us this wisdom. Wisdom is there for the asking. James 1.5 says God gives to all liberally or freely or generously. Without reproach. That means God won't rebuke you for asking. He won't say, oh, you're so dumb that you have to ask for wisdom. No, God delights to hear you asking Him for wisdom. He wants you to ask. And He wants you to ask because He's so ready to give. He has this wisdom He wants to share for you. He wants to give it to you. And so when you ask, He will give it. James is saying, look, God's not a tightwad. God's not a miser. God's not clutching to His wisdom, hoping you won't ask for any of it. The God of James is a giving God. A God who gives and gives and gives. A God who is happy to share what He has with us. A God who is happy to share His wisdom with you. This God is a giver. He is the giving God. That's how He wants to be known. The God who gives. He's a God of grace and mercy. A God who enriches the poor, a God who strengthens the weak, and yes, a God who enlightens the foolish with His wisdom. He is the giving God, the God who gives generously. He is the giver. And so ask. Think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. He says, you have not because you ask not. If you lack wisdom, you have not because you ask not. Jesus says, ask and it will be given. Knock and it will be opened. Seek and you will find. If you ask for a fish, God's not going to give you a serpent. If you ask for bread, God's not going to give you a stone. If you ask for wisdom, God's not going to give you folly. He's going to give you the wisdom you seek. He is a Father who loves to give His children good gifts. Indeed, Scripture is filled with promises that speak this way. Jesus says, whatever you ask for in My name to the Father, you will receive. If you ask the Father for wisdom in Jesus' name, you're going to be given Wisdom. Ask for wisdom and God will grant it. But when God answers this prayer, what does it look like? What does it look like for God to answer this prayer for wisdom? You pray for wisdom, God answers, but how? How does God give this wisdom to you? And how do we know wisdom? How how do we recognize this wisdom when it's been granted to us? What does it look like? Well, if you pray for wisdom and God grants it, does it mean that God zaps you with some kind of wisdom bolt from the wild blue yonder? 
You know, like God zaps you with this lightning bolt of wisdom and just all of a sudden you roll out of bed one day and suddenly you've got these amazing new insights. Well, I suppose that's possible. And certainly God could do that. Maybe God does sometimes do that. But it's not likely or normal for God to work that way. That's not his usual way of answering our prayers. Think of Solomon. Yes, God greatly increased Solomon's wisdom after he asked for it. But Solomon had already been taught by his father David from his youth. He had already been immersed in the Scriptures. He had already been a faithful member of the worshiping people of God for years. It's interesting, in David's final words to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, he says to Solomon, be a man. And and he says, walk in the ways of the Lord, keeping His commandments. What is David doing? He's saying to Solomon, this is really where wisdom begins. With you fearing God, and seeking to be obedient to him. Solomon didn't just get zapped with a wisdom bolt from the wild blue yonder. Rather, the wisdom Solomon was given grew out of what he had already been taught by his father. Think about this kind of analogy. When we pray for our daily bread, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, how does that work? How does God answer that prayer? God doesn't just drop bread into our pantries or onto our tables. He could do that. He's done that at certain times in history. He could make bread fall like manna from heaven, but usually that's not what he does. If you pray, God, give me this day my daily bread, normally how God answers that prayer is by giving you a job and calling you to work that job. He gives you your daily bread by giving you gainful employment so you can make money, which in turn you can use to buy bread. And I'd say it is the same way with wisdom as it is with our daily bread, so it is with our daily wisdom. We pray for wisdom, but we should also study and read and meditate. God imparts His wisdom to us largely as we saturate ourselves in His Word. You want wisdom? Immerse yourself in the Scriptures. You want wisdom? Join continually, regularly, faithfully with the worshiping people of God. But that's not all. Uh, We we can go further in thinking about how God answers uh, this prayer for wisdom. Proverbs tells us there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Where does God's wisdom primarily reside? Where does God's wisdom dwell? Where is it to be found? God's wisdom largely resides in His faithful people. Where's God's wisdom found? In other people. In faithful people. Christian people. And when you are in a situation that requires more wisdom than you presently have, you should seek out wise fellow Christians. They will usually be older than you, though perhaps not always. Sometimes maybe the same age. Sometimes perhaps even younger. But seek out other faithful Christians and get their counsel because God's wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors. God's wisdom is often found in His people and we access it by getting to know them and by asking them. See, in asking other people for wisdom, this is a way of asking God for wisdom. God, I want you to share with me the wisdom you've given to this other person. God can answer your prayers for wisdom by putting wise people in your life. C.S. Lewis surrounded himself with a circle of wise companions. C.S. Lewis said the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. 
you're not going to have all wisdom in yourself. But if you surround yourself with other people who are growing in wisdom, you've got access to their wisdom as well. So, who are the Job's and the Solomon's and the James's in your life? Who are, who are the Job's and the Solomon's in your circle of friends, in your network? Where's your James? Where's your Job? Where's your Solomon? You can go seek wisdom from. You need to have those kind of people in your life. Just a couple other things here really quickly. When we're seeking wisdom, don't confuse wisdom with ideology. Don't confuse wisdom with worldview. Not all ideology is bad. Not all philosophy is bad. But ideology has a tendency to force circumstances to fit prefabricated systems of thought. And so ideologies tend to oversimplify complex problems. Ideologies tend to be reductionistic. You see this in our politics all the time where ideology is at work. And so the the, the solutions to the problems that are proposed really aren't that wise. They're the product of ideology rather than wisdom. But sometimes even in our own circles, this can happen with what we call Christian worldview thinking. Now, I'm a a fan of worldview. Worldview approaches uh, to to education. It can be very, very helpful. And, And I think in Christian education circles, they've done a lot of good. Talk about worldview and teaching worldview is wonderful. We need to develop Christian worldviews in our kids, in our students. But worldview can run into the same kind of problem as ideology, and that is thinking because we have a body of knowledge, because we know certain facts, therefore we have answers to all the problems we're going to face. And it's very simple. You know, it's just a matter of inputting the data and out comes the solution. Worldview can give us principles and categories that are very needful, very helpful when it comes to interpreting the world. You know, John Calvin talked about putting on the spectacles of Scripture, the the glasses of Scripture. That's a kind of worldview way of thinking. And again, I think that's helpful to a point. But worldview is not the same as wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 does not say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of worldview. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, there's no passage in Scripture that says worldview is better than jewels. But Proverbs 4 tells us wisdom is better than jewels. Worldview is information. Worldviews give knowledge. It's helpful knowledge. It's important knowledge. It's necessary knowledge. But wisdom goes beyond knowledge. Wisdom is hands-on. It's relational in ways that worldview thinking is not. You know, worldviews are intellectual constructs that help us in a lot of areas of life. But wisdom's more than that. Wisdom's not just stored up information, and it can't all be learned in a classroom. Wisdom comes through pain and heartbreak and struggle and faithful experience of life's ups and downs. Wisdom is personal and relational in ways that worldview usually is not. There's a depth and a richness to wisdom that's not there if you just talk about a Christian worldview. So yes, study your Christian worldview. Learn those principles. Learn those categories. But recognize wisdom is more than that. It's not just a worldview. It's not just an ideology. It's not just philosophy. Wisdom is found in knowing truth. In knowing the one who is truth. Wisdom is found in loving what is good and beautiful and in rejecting and hating what is evil. Wisdom gives itself to the one who is the ultimate source of wisdom. And in knowing the one who is wisdom, we are changed more and more into his image. This is what James is telling us to ask for. 
in asking for wisdom, we're asking for God Himself. And finally, one last thought. Wisdom does not eliminate mystery. Sometimes we think, oh, the wise man has all the answers. He solved all the riddles to life. No, wisdom does not mean having all the answers. Wisdom does not mean you're going to understand every trial God brings into your life. I don't quote football coaches much in sermons, uh, but there was an Auburn football coach who once said, hindsight is 50-50. Okay. What he meant to say, obviously, was hindsight is 20-20. Okay. Then in hindsight, you see things clearly. Okay. I know the Alabama fans will love the fact that an Auburn coach couldn't even get that right. Okay. But here's the thing. Even in hindsight, Things are often not 2020. Even looking back on things, you often still can't understand them. In other words, that coach might have been right. <laughs> it might be that hindsight's no better than 50-50. Wisdom does not make everything in life transparent or crystal clear. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Remember that from Ecclesiastes and Tolkien? Even the wise cannot see all ends. There are limits even to what our wisdom can bring us to understand. Your suffering might well remain a mystery and an enigma. The trials you face may never have resolution in this life that you can understand. Life is full of riddles and puzzles, even to the wise. Job was never given the explanation of his suffering. We get that in the book, but Job himself never got it. So if life is still going to have mystery, what are you going to do? You know what the wisest do in those situations? They keep on trusting God anyway. Even when the questions remain. They keep seeking God even when God's not giving the answers. See, if your life is full of question marks and you wonder about this and you wonder about that and why did this happen and why did that happen, I'm not saying that if you grow in wisdom, you're going to have answers to all those questions. I don't know. But I can tell you this, the wise thing to do is to continue to pursue God. The wise man is a man of faith. A man who trusts without doubting God's goodness, without doubting God's generosity. A man who trusts without becoming double-minded when things are difficult. The wisest thing you can do in any situation in life is to trust God. What does wisdom do? The wise man trusts God. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us to trust in you always, to seek your wisdom, to receive your wisdom, and yet to know that even as you impart wisdom to us, this does not mean we will have all the answers. Help us to live with those unanswered questions because we're trusting you. We're resting in your goodness, your love, your mercy, these are the sure things. You give us the answers we need. Uh, but Father, we know we're not going to have all the answers, so help us to trust you anyway, to rely on your goodness, to not become double-minded or doubtful of your goodness. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.